The coziest thing about the Arctic is polar bears, and today these lovable beasts are becoming poster children for the dangers of global warming. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll talk with someone who knows these bears well, photographer Stephen Kaslowski. Stephen has spent years traveling around the Alaska and Canadian Arctic in temperatures I can't even imagine to capture powerful images of that stunningly stark beauty. Through his series of gorgeous coffee table books, he brings us the wonders of the Arctic, and we don't even need to leave the coziness of our living rooms. Today, Stephen will tell us about his latest collection. It's called The Last Polar Bear. And he'll share his close encounters with these bears and also tell us about the indigenous people whose lives are so intertwined with their fate. And later in the hour, we'll start getting ready for Christmas, European style. We'll find out just how to enjoy the holidays in London and Rome. Natale con i tuoi, Pasqua con chi vuoi. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America, plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. There's 25,000 cuddly white bears scattered all across the Arctic, and, you know, they've become the poster child for the tragedy of global warming. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're joined by Stephen Koslowski. Stephen's written a book called The Last Polar Bear, A Photographic Journey by Stephen Koslowski. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Rick. Yeah, is, is this room cold enough for you? Uh, it's kind of hot in here, but that's okay. Yeah. Okay, you spent eight years working on this book. You're primarily a photographer. Mm-hmm. And yeah. what, what was your goal? What, what, what set you out? Well, what set me out in the beginning, some 16 years ago, and I've been photographing the Arctic about 12 and polar bears for about eight, and then I got together on this book project about four years ago was just the uh, the love to want to do photography. I was looking for a career, which I still kind of haven't managed to make happen. I was a biologist at the time, and I wasn't really interested in the master's and Ph.D. program and then eventually getting into administration. So I thought, oh, what the heck, you know, young and dumb, I'll pick up a camera and find a way to do that. And I kind of wandered to Alaska and, and did odd jobs up there and odd jobs down here and photographed whenever I could. And eventually I found my way up to the Arctic, and then I was living in a station wagon on the Hall Road, and I wanted to photograph somewhere different. It was important to me if I was going to do this. And the reason I went to nature was I find a certain peace in it, just sitting and waiting and watching and learning that uh, many people haven't done it. So that which brought me up to the Arctic. And from there, I met people, and they, um, they moved me in the direction of villages where eventually I bumped into the polar bear a little over eight years ago. Now, the polar bear, people have an emotional attachment to these bears. I mean, it's just a perfect kind of uh, heart tugger. You see a bear on a melting piece of ice if you want to become an environmentalist. What is it about polar bears that has this sort of warmth and fascination with humans? Um, that's a great question. You know, it, it's almost a question that, to me, it doesn't even really need an answer. Often you'll ask uh, Nupiat people, what about this? What about that? And, well, they say, I don't know about this or that. I know about maybe, you know, this one thing. Uh, maybe it's okay not to have answers to everything. And the polar bear is kind of that mythical animal. It's a huge creature. It's very loving. It's very social. It's very beautiful. And it manages to live in an environment to us that is uh, almost like the moon, but somehow it's able to survive up You know, there. I think that must be part of it. Well, there's 25,000 polar bears, they figure, in existence right now. Yeah, that's that's the numbers I've been hearing. Scattered pretty equally across the polar region, just in that whole big circle. Um, I think the majority of them are in the high Canadian Arctic. And then they believe there's about four to 8,000 in Alaska, off the coast, of course, and they believe it's closer to 4,000. But you have to understand that the Arctic is such a difficult place to work and study. It's really hard to nail these numbers down as definite numbers. So it's, uh, it's, they're all good questions, but there's a lot of unknowns with them. Now, what you were able to do is capture these polar bears, like young baby polar bears playing and dedicated parents and loving families. I mean, you can almost see people in these bears. Well, I think that they are extremely intelligent, and a lot of times we look, as far as my opinion goes, we look at ourselves as being above things in, in the world, in the natural world, and I think it's a perfect example in a lot of ways that these bears are above us in quite a few ways. So they are... Including latitude. Including latitude, exactly. I mean, is there actually a demarcation where people stop living and bears start living, or is there a latitude belt where there are bears and Arctic people living together? Um, there is a belt where they live together because what the polar bear wants to do is it wants to live on ice, first of all. And second of all, it wants to live where they're going to be its favorite prey, which is the ringed seal. 
So generally, these areas are where the continental shelf jets out past the land, so the water is kind of shallow. It allows for the carbon matter, because carbon matter makes up all life, to start a cyclical cycle to make up this web of life. We have, we have carbon, we have algae, we have small invertebrates, eventually fish, and eventually seals, and then eventually the polar bear that eats them. When you get past the continental shelf, you drop off to thousands of feet deep, and it's known as what's a carbon abyss. So it's really not a place a, the polar bear would choose to be. It would like to be in this area of continental shelf around the islands and around the coastline. But that's quickly changing now because this ice is disappearing extremely fast. That's the whole, that's the whole threat to their existence. Exactly. Now, so if you put a polar bear, if you just planted him in the middle of Greenland where it's cold enough and icy enough, but it's in the middle of land and there's no sea in sight, would they have a difficult time living? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they um, they want to eat fat. I mean, that's what they're after. Unless it's a starving animal. You know, starving people are as dangerous as starving animals because some people are going to do whatever they have to to survive. Some people are going to lay down and die. And the same with certain polar bears. But if you're around uh, well-fed polar bears, they're not really going to attack people for one reason. We don't have that much fat on us. And that's really what they're looking for. They're looking for blubber. And I was, uh, <laughs> I was sleeping in my tent. I had a bear slide down my tent and put a paw on my head and shoulder. And it was only playing, luckily for me. Wow. And I rolled out screaming and yelling and scared this animal off because in a lot of ways, they're very shy animals, too. So if, if Laurel and Hardy were, were hiking across the Arctic, one of them would be endangered. Probably, yeah. yeah. Now, are, are polar bears... Especially if they're laying down like a seal. So that's a big issue. Are they considered a, a marine mammal or a terrestrial mammal? They're considered a marine... They're classified as a marine mammal. Oh, really? So they're protected under the Marine Mammal Protection So what's Act. another marine mammal? Uh, a whale. A whale. That's sure. it. That's the most famous marine mammal, right? Oh, and, absolutely. And seals. Seals, yeah. So seals, whales, and polar bears. Generally, anything that lives in the water and breathes air. But here we have a polar bear, which lives on top of frozen water and breathes air. There you go. Are their yeah. bodies designed a certain way that makes them more uh, effective in water? Oh, yeah. They do have certain abilities in their paws and what have you to swim and use their back legs like rudders, more so than a grizzly bear. And they came from grizzly bears, and they can interbreed with grizzly bears and have viable offspring, which is one of the few separate species animals that can get together now, and that's do that. interesting. That's sort of, if you agree in evolution, that's sort of taking it from dry land to the sea, whereas tetrapods and all that kind of thing went from, like, sea-swimming creatures to land, right? That's exactly what happened. So you've got to take a bear, like the bears we know, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden they have to live in the water and they evolve to have uh, fins for hands and rudders for tails. Yeah, absolutely. A polar bear has more of a rudder effective tail than a than a grizzly bear? Well, it's feet. It'll use its feet as a rudder when it swims. But its paws has, from my understanding, has slight webbing in it to help it swim. It has hollow fur and it, it's colorless. Its fur isn't actually white. It's colorless fur. And uh, its its look can be either derived from what it's eating, you know, the oil and the food it's eating, if it's eating whale blubber, or if it's in a big ukaruk, which is a large bearded seal. Where there's, so you have the ring seal, which is about 150 pounds, known as a nutchuck, and the, uh, the bearded seal, um, which is about 750 pounds. The polar bear hunts both these animals, which migrate through different parts of the Arctic, up into the Arctic during different so parts of the So for polar year. bears, dinner is at sea. Dinner is on the ice. On the ice. On okay. the ice, yeah. Sea creatures. On sea the creatures. Ice. It, it'll take a beluga whale when it can from time to time, such as uh, in, the, in the fall time, sometimes whales misjudge when they have to leave and they'll get stuck in small areas of open water and they'll keep a little hole open. And as it freezes, a polar bear will come to this area and take advantage of it and rip the breathing hole and bleed the beluga whale out and then drag this smaller whale up onto the ice where not only it'll eat it, but its friend the Arctic fox will eat it and many gulls and what have wow. you. This is Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling in polar regions today. We're talking with Stephen Kozlowski. And Stephen has a website called lefteyepro.com, L-E-F-T-E-Y-E-P-R-O, lefteyepro.com, where he collects his photographs and uh, explains his book. It's a beautiful book. I had so much fun, Stephen, just familiarizing myself with your work, The Last Polar Bear, it's called. Let's talk a little more about the just the polar bear's design. They live in such a cold environment, is there something about their fur that keeps them warm? They've got black skin, right? Yeah, they do have black skin, and this allows them to attract heat. They have hollow fur, which also acts as insulation, and then they have a a wonderful layer of blubber, as long as they're getting enough food. And that goes back to what they're usually trying to eat, you know, which is blubber, whether it's from a whale or from a seal. They have more of a problem overheating than being cold. Wow. Now, this blubber business is interesting. I, I saw in your book... The local um, 
what's the political? It's not Eskimo. What are the people up there called? Inuit? Uh, Inuit in, in uh, Canada, Inupiaq in Alaska. But in Alaska, um, my uh, Inupiaq friends also reference the term Eskimo quite a bit. And if you looked on the Barrow website for the Alaska Eskimo Whale Commission, it, you know. So, Eskimo's okay. Uh, I think in Alaska, it's okay, but it's definitely not okay in Canada. Ah, really? Because mm-hmm. I, I want to say Eskimo, but I don't yeah. want to be insulting. Yeah, and I have gotten phone calls from other interviews from people who said, and I said, well, then how come on the website, Barrow has Alaska Eskimo Whale Commission when that's their own whale commission? And Yeah. In Alaska, the people of the Arctic, the indigenous people of the Arctic can be called Eskimos. In my understanding of Your it, understanding. yes. Now, I was getting at Blubber. I saw Eskimos in Alaska and uh, Inuit people in Canada pulling giant blocks of blubber from whales, Mm -hmm. just like sleds across the ice. Sure. And that's what the polar bears eat also, the same thing. Yeah. Traditionally, the Nupiat people would take the blubber and render it down and to use it for a dipping sauce or oil, or they would burn it and use it for fuel. But now that's not needed so much. So what they're really after is the skin layer on top, which is the muktuk. It's called muktuk, and it's, it's quite tasty, and that's usually boiled with just a little bit of fat. Then the mass amount of blubber is kind of thrown away, well, thrown away to the bears and to the other animals that utilize it. And then also the meat is like steak meat, and they utilize that. And it's a very important part of their diet and their tradition. It holds them together as a people in a lot of ways. And uh, when Sort of like the buffalo would have been to the Plains Indians. Exactly, like the buffalo. And you think, well, don't they have stores? Don't they have shops? Don't they yeah. have food? Yeah. Well, yeah, they have some of these things, except usually it's frozen processed foods and it's extremely expensive. So it's important for them you know, to That's something to your book their... taught me. I, I, it was so interesting to think that way up on the northern slope of Alaska, gasoline for your car is very expensive. $6 a gallon right now on the north slope. Because they're shipping it all south and there's not enough population up there to process it, right? Well, yeah, by the time they move it up. What an irony. They couldn't just tap into it because it has to be process somehow. Yeah, you know, so they pump it down to Valdez, and I believe there's some kind of refinery down there, and then it gets barged back up or flown back up on a big plane, and by the end of that, it's it went up from three bucks a gallon to six bucks a gallon. So uh, a little bit of whale oil might be helpful. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. they might be going back to that. One of the most um, striking shots I saw in your book was a shot of a of a skinny, hungry bear. Didn't get his blubber, and he was he was emaciated. That must be heart tugging when you see that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's part of nature, you know, that not everything survives, just like, you know, things are always dying and going back to the earth. And, uh, it, it, you know, I think what's, what is what is a little sad in a way is uh, I think we have a great society and we have a lot of wonderful people. And, I, and I've been lucky to work with a lot of wonderful people and know wonderful people. But the path we've seemed to have chosen and the direction we're heading is so far or trying to disconnect us from nature to the point that uh, the way we live and consume is not only destroying the polar bear's habitat, which is that coastal ice, but eventually will unravel habitats all over the world, raise water levels, and we can see lots of people dying on islands and having to move. And um, the future hundred years of this planet is going to be precarious. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Stephen Koslowski. He comes with a perspective that comes out of working for eight years in the Arctic to write a beautiful book and photograph a beautiful book called The Last Polar Bear. Clearly, this has had an impact on his perspective, and that's what we're learning about today. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're up in the Arctic. We're talking with Stephen Koslowski. He's written a book called The Last Polar Bear. Stephen, I learned from paging through your book that polar bears come in colors other than white. It's interesting. I never thought about that. But you've got uh, sort of an indication of what they last killed on their pelt. Yeah, when they um, eat bearded seals or they get into bowhead whales, their fur can almost take kind of a yellow shine. And also it depends on the sunlight. Is it behind clouds? Is it below the horizon? Is it a strong direct sun? Because since it's hollow fur, it reflects the light that it's getting around it. So it can appear many different shades other than white at times. And then the black skin can also reflect the light, making it look darker and blacker. Plus, they can pick up dirt or dust in their fur, too. This must have been a a fascinating period of discovery for you. Over eight years, you're working on this book. Yes. Continued. Did did you know a lot about polar bears when you started? No, I I knew nothing about polar bears. And I really um, had no sense that I would end up photographing polar bears in Alaska because I thought it was uh, too far removed and too difficult to do. As I said, I was just living on the Hall Road in a station wagon just to try to photograph the Arctic and and do something different. And it was only by accident that I was thrown into a village and a bush pilot took me in and let me wash dishes and help him unload planes that I understood that there were polar bears around and then over years made friends with uh, Inupiat people who would take me out on on the land and kind of take me under their wing, adopt me into their families. And it was through this that I was able to really learn of the secrets of this magnificent environment that is off the coast of Alaska. And and eventually when I started this project full bore four years ago, it's over 12 years that I've been working in the Arctic, I realized it wasn't just a project about the polar bear, but it was a project about this uh, coastal continental shelf ice. And the project covered from Herschel Island all the way in the east, which is in Canada, all the way to Point Hope, uh, 850 miles away. And Point Hope is an amazing place because it used to be the headquarters in Alaska for the uh, Inuit people before there was any western or white settlement. And they had trade routes with Russia and the Far East for thousands of years across the ice. They talk about wolverines that were uh, quite a bit larger than uh, land wolverines and silver in color. They talk about um, they talk about all kinds of things that almost seem mythical at times, but uh, they're actually uh, real. And so they had this true. sort of Sasquatch Wolverine, which was actually the big bear, huh? The yeah. big white bear. Uh, no, it was a Wolverine. Oh, Wolverine! It was a Wolverine that lived on the ice and, and ate seals. Huh? And there. But um, now there's this whole Nanook business. What is that? Oh, Nanook is the uh, Inupiat word for polar bear, and it's an amazing language that is. Uh, it seems to be disappearing and. It's a difficult language. I know bits and pieces of, of words, but things like aliga, which means very good. And they also put their words into songs to learn them, like ika, bika, kana, uva, up, down, over here. And um, the Inupia people are a lot about having a good time and, and laughing. And they're definitely a special, special group Does of people. Does their culture survive with all the craziness of this modern world and economic unviability of trying to keep their kids in touch with the modern world, but still living up off of the land in the north? You know, it's changing, but it does survive. And and them being able to live their traditional ways of life as far as, say, spring whaling and, and things and hunting whales, I mean, this is a big part of it. But they're definitely a part of our society now, too, which is uh, a society that is rapidly moving ahead and changing. I feel that we live in a society that's moving in more of a straight line where Traditional societies and nomadic societies maybe moved more in a circle, you know, like nature moves in a circle, you'd like to think of it. And unfortunately, this fast-moving uh, straightwood movement of a society is maybe uh, changing the whole planet along with it. And, uh, and that's unfortunate in some and ways. And if you happen to be a nomadic society, it's almost like you're breaking the rules. It's like it's not allowed to be nomadic in yeah. this modern context. And if you look at the history of the Inupiat people in Alaska and the Inuit people in Canada— you know, after World War II and right around that area, they were forced into schools uh, down in Oregon, taken from their parents in Canada. They uh, had a friend who was just paid reparations because he was uh, taken from his family. People were taken from their families. You know, there was really a movement to break their culture and break them as a people. In 1972, in in school in Barter Island, Kaktovik, kids were hit with a ruler for speaking their own language. My friend Alice Faith uh, was five years old, went to school, and was hit with a ruler for speaking uh, her Inupiat language. And that's just yesterday, really, when you think about it. And it's happening all over the world, right in our generation. Nomadic cultures are being hit with rulers if their children speak their parents' language. Yeah, so to speak, yeah. The governments are, are giving them... Cheap housing and schools on the condition that they abandon their traditional lifestyles and learn to conform to the 
the global economy. You know, it almost, I think governments see it as making things simpler, right? If everybody's in the same movement yeah. or, but at the end of the day, we lose so much. As, as you would know, traveling around to countries, culture is everything to people. And uh, what, what kind of people are we going to be in the world when we have no more separate cultures and we all have the same culture? You know, it's a fascinating thing, this book, The Last Polar Bear. When I read the book, it wasn't clear to me exactly fundamentally what the book was about. It's, is it about bears or culture or the Arctic or climate change or, or what is it about? It's about this environment that's off the Arctic coast that the Inupiat people have utilized, that the, uh, that the polar bear and Nanook has utilized, that the Arctic fox utilizes, and that all the animals, the birds. You have a spring migration, almost like a drumbeat that goes on through the Alaskan Arctic. It starts in the Bering Sea. And as the ice breaks up, there are what's known as leads, which are cracks in the ice. And as spring comes, these leads get wider and wider. And they're due to currents and changes in temperature and what have you. But what they allow, if you think of them as a lung opening and closing, is this mass migration of hundreds of thousands of king eider ducks and common eider ducks, tens of thousands of bowhead whales, 30 or so thousand beluga whales into Canada mm. from the Bering Sea. And they all move up the coast through these openings and into their summer feeding grounds. And it's a, it's a place that when I first encountered it, didn't even seem real. You know, nothing could live here. You know, it's five below zero. My fingertips are freezing, you know. But there is so much life in this place, and it's so harsh. But at the same time, it's extremely fragile, and it's changing very quickly. There's a lesson there, isn't there? I mean, in so many environments on this planet, the unschooled eye could take a quick look at it and say, how could anything live here? And the more you know it, the more of a beautiful interwoven ecosystem there is. You can never judge a book by its cover, really. Yeah, and you've spent a lot of time in the Arctic, and it sounds like it's worth uh, the chilly nights. It, oh, it absolutely is, yeah. So tell me about this. You, you traveled a lot to do this book, and it must take patience. Anytime you're filming wildlife, it takes patience, right? Yeah, or you talk yourself into believing it's going to happen the next minute, you know, and the next minute's always the next minute. So what happens? You're camped out where you think a polar bear is going to come out of his uh, den or whatever, and, and you've committed three or four hours to this, and you probably get so invested in it, you can't you can't give it up until it happens. Well, I spent 20 days in a tent outside a polar bear den hoping for it to come out. And my uh, my friend Jack Kayatuk, who's about the same age as me, who's taken me around the Arctic and has really taught me a lot, took me in the fall to an area he knew that where there's some polar bears that denned. We found a den that was a polar bear was in it in early winter. And then the following spring, him, myself, and my friend Bruce Langasuck went back with our sleds and snow machines, and we built a camp. And then we built an igloo close to where we thought the den would be. And then my friend Jack went back to the village to get some stuff. On his way back, his snow machine broke down. And at 40 below zero, into the wind, he had to walk home two days and he almost died. That's how harsh this country is. I was coming out of the tent 10 minutes a day then. And eventually, after 12 days, the storm passed. And you're wondering, what are you doing here? You know, this is insane. You know, you, you think you're, you're not sitting in a tent for, for two, three weeks, coming out 10 minutes a day, waiting for the bear to wake up and come out of his hibernation. Well, you don't even know if the bear is still there, all right? You know? And you didn't even think about just setting a little alarm clock and tossing it in there? Uh, well, you, we didn't know when the bear would come out. We didn't know <laughs> if the bear was there. And What if just... you dozed off and you missed him? Uh, it could have Good question. It, it actually did happen in a way because the bear, we thought we were, you know, smarty pants, uh, my Eskimo <laughs> friend and myself, that we had this igloo built and we were sneaking back and forth from the tent. And uh, eventually the bear broke ground and we realized she was there, but she never really came out at first. She was getting the cubs used to the cold. So yeah. we kept waiting in the igloo and we'd see a head pop up and nothing. And then the day would go by. So eventually I was back in our tent, which is about 450 yards or so away. And I came out to get something out of the sled. And there she was at night with her two cubs watching our camp as I'd been watching her. I turned and ran back in the tent. She turned and ran back in her hole. And then eventually I went closer into the igloo the next day, and they all came out, and they spent several days out and amongst the, uh, the snow. Must have been a field day for you with your zoom lens. It, it was quite amazing. I cracked my lens, actually, because of the cold. I had moisture and heat. So, I, I mean, it was... Uh, Frustrating God, when that happened. Well, God gave us a good one, but he kept us honest. <laughs> now, a couple of questions. First of all, are polar bears afraid when they see you? Um, if you give them no reason to be afraid and if they're not... It, it depends on the bear. You okay. know, it really depends on the bear and it depends on the situation. In certain situations, they'll walk right up to you and be quite brazen. In other situations, it's extremely difficult to get close to them. When you're photographing a mother with uh, cubs, you want to make sure you have somewhat of a safe distance and you don't scare her because you don't want to run her off or anything like that. But generally, um, my experiences and everybody's experiences can be different is that... Um, you can scare them off pretty easy unless they're really on the go for food. Do they have good eyesight? They have 
pretty good eyesight, but really it's it's in their nose that they're they're yeah, led you by. You said in your book they could smell a, a seal camp 10 miles away or oh, something. Oh, further, yeah. Further than that. They yeah. can smell the seals. But you have to remember it's on the wind too, so... You know, if something's a mile away and the wind's not right, can they smell a human? Smell it? Oh yeah, they can smell a person. Some more than others? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Especially huh. me after three weeks. <laughs> after three weeks in the tent, were you camouflaged to, to so they wouldn't see you? Did you wear white and so on? I uh, we had a white tent, and then of course we made the igloo out of uh, snow blocks, so that was white. But um, huh. but the bear knew exactly sure. where we were dumb. and who we yeah. were. Yeah, they're not dumb at all. <laughs> I saw them playing dumb. with your tripod in the book. That was kind of cute. Sure, that's how curious they are. You know, I sat there and I photographed, and this was more. Or in the fall time, winter time, a mother with a cub, uh-huh. eventually, you know, she was wondering what the heck I was doing. And unaggressively, she walked over and started looking through my camera, wondering, you know, what is this guy? I, you know, who knows what she was thinking? But she looked through the back of my camera, the front of the camera, through the lens, uh. <laughs> you know, almost wondering what was I doing staring at her through this thing. And eventually, I just she just backed away and let me go back to my camera at that point. I'm talking with Stephen Kozlowski, and Stephen has spent a lot of time camping out in snowfields waiting for the bears to wake up and come out of their dens. He's written a book called The Last Polar Bear, a photographic journey. Stephen, this is just fascinating. And while you're up there, you must have learned a lot about the local culture, the Inuit or Eskimo culture. How does the bear tie in with their culture today? I would imagine, just like the Plains Indians and the buffalo were intimately intertwined, traditionally, Nanook and the Eskimos would have been intertwined. Does that survive today? Yes, it, it does survive. They still sleep on polar bear rugs in their camps out on the ice, which keeps you quite warm. They still utilize the meat as far as eating it, and they even uh, utilize the animal's claws and what have you for artwork, which is something they've always traditionally done and been able to trade over time. And polar bear mittens, I saw one of them. Yeah, the extremely warm. Is that good? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, your hands will be warm at 80 below zero. As a photographer and an explorer, did you find them helpful as guides? They wouldn't know where the polar bears were and so on? Oh, yes. You know, hunters and what have you of the far north, like any hunter anywhere else, has to know its game and where it might be. And they were extremely helpful. And if it wasn't for my friends, my Inupiat friends and what have you, I wouldn't have been able to to really understand and get into this country. And that's still the fact of the matter to this day when I go back up there and travel around. Now, I understand polar bears were listed as an endangered species, but the indigenous people of the polar region had license to still kill them. Is that right? Yeah, they they still do have subsistence rights in Alaska. And then in Canada, there was a a trophy hunt. And and you have to understand, most of the hunters came from the U.S. And these bears, one bear, um, a hunter told me, provided him with $100,000 over four years. A a really wealthy fellow wanted a bear. And the first year, they can get one, paid him $25. Second year, they saw some, nothing they liked. And eventually, after a couple more years, they found a bear he liked. And he paid him quite a bit more money. Because the... Uh, Inuit had the right to shoot him, and the other guy could buy him from... Um, no, in Canada, there is a trophy hunt, but you have to be guided by an Inuit, and then, you know, the Inuit gains those proceeds. So The with, Inuit community or the one guy who happens The, the one be? guy, but, you know, they take turns with the hunt. Like, you get to do one hunt, and then there's a raffle, it's different in different places, and someone else gets to do the other hunt. But the problem is now with polar bears getting listed... You can't bring skins back into the U.S., so this is destroying an economic base for wow. the Inuit people in Canada. And nobody in the environmental movement, from as far as I know, has really done anything to replace that source of income for those people, which is kind of sad in a way because, That's you know... That's an interesting dilemma. You want to protect the polar bears, but you don't want to impoverish the Inuit people. Well, it's like they're it's paying the price for yeah. climate change that we're causing down here, so it really makes no sense at all. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Stephen Koslowski. He writes a book called The Last Polar Bear. Stephen's website, if you want to see some of the photographs we've been talking about, is lefteyepro.com. L-E-F-T-E-Y-E-P-R-O.com. We got Norman on the phone in Ottawa, Ontario. Hi, Norman. Thanks for your call. Hi. Thanks for taking it. Yeah. You know, you mentioned this earlier, uh, alluded to the, the sensitivity of the environment in the Arctic, and you know, I've been lucky enough to travel up there a couple of times. With the changing environment up there and the warming trends and the damage that's being caused, how do you get the information across to people without bringing more people up there to see what's going on, hence causing more damage to a fragile ecosystem? It's, it's like a vicious circle. Yeah, I mean, I think everything we do is a vicious circle. I mean, it's part of our society. That's that's a huge problem with it. Um, we're a great society, but we're headed in bad directions. And 
I mean, I could say joking around, we'll just get the book and look at the pictures, right? But that's a problem I have with what I do, too. You know, I go up to these places, I, uh, I take images, and then what do I do? I encourage people to go there. So um, I don't know that it's a problem with people going to the Arctic as much as that we need to change the way we live and we consume things. But that's a big part of how we have our economy, too. It's an economy built on consumption. So, you know... At the end of the day, I'm just a simple nature photographer. I, you know, there are confusing issues and questions to deal with. Well, one of the other things, too, I think that concerns me personally a lot is the fact that the warming trend that we see these days is melting more and more ice, as you mentioned, and unfortunately, maybe in some ways, making the Arctic more accessible to more people. Well, this is very true. There's a lot of tourism that's going through the Arctic now. Um, last fall, when I was by the Canadian border, a sailboat came through from the east. There's already been ships up there probing, uh, scientists looking for... There's supposed to be a huge amount of oil off the Canadian Arctic coast and the Alaska Arctic coast, right? Because millions of years ago, there were forests, and now these forests decomposed under the water. And there's supposed to be huge deposits of oil. So I think... As time goes on, I mean, the Arctic is going to really be industrialized. And at some point, who knows, there might even be shipping through the Arctic when the ice is pulled back far enough that they decide to go that route instead of the Panama Canal. I think that's still kind of a ways off, though. So, Norman, you're from Ottawa. What's the general take in Canada? Is there sort of a exciting gung-ho, it's thawing out, let's go up there and make some money? Or is there a feeling in Canada that global warming is a tragedy? I think it's definitely a split feeling here. The, the government up here, the conservative government, has announced plans to try and exploit the resources there and argue that they can do it without damaging the environment. But, of course, uh, a goodly segment of the population just doesn't think that that's possible. The two simply can't go hand in hand. Right. You know, that's the conundrum we face. The wealth is there. The sources of energy are there. Uh, what do we do? Do we go for the traditional route or do we you know, try and divert ourselves and look for alternate sources of energy and alternate ways of creating energy. So it's, it's, a, it's a big discussion point here now, especially with the fact that everything's warming, everything's melting, and everything's becoming more accessible. And uh, Canada, probably more than any country in the planet, unless you live in Victoria or Vancouver, stands to benefit, at least in the short term, from global warming. Well, that's for sure. But again, you know, uh, don't forget a large part of our prairies and your prairies as well are close to desert status now. If it gets much drier there, uh, huh. you may not have to go very far to get to a desert in Canada. <laughs> and then if we lose the honeybee too, you know, on yeah. and on it goes. Yeah. It all unravels. All right. Norman, thanks for your, uh, your call and your thoughtful insights there. Thanks very much. You bet. Stephen, the polar bear really puts a face on climate change, doesn't it? Absolutely. You say the polar bear's story is ultimately our story. What do you mean by that? I mean that uh, in two ways. The polar bear is one of the last top predators that it still lives nomadic in its environment and it's still free. And as it loses its environment, we too will slowly lose as what we know, our environment and our environmental change. And we'll have to undergo a lot of changes as the polar bear is going to have to undergo to survive. And it's going to be quite difficult. Powerful lessons from your cold but enlightening years in the Arctic. Stephen Kowalski, author of The Last Polar Bear, thanks again. Fascinating information. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. You can add to our discussion in the radio comment boards at ricksteves.com. Up next, we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas with the locals in Rome and London. And we'll check in with a listener who recommends visiting one of Germany's best Christmas markets. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Have you ever spent the holiday season overseas? You might have been surprised at how many American Christmas traditions are also celebrated abroad. As our world shrinks, Jingle Bells has become a hit in many languages. But thankfully, each country still has its own unique ways of celebrating the holidays. Right now, we'll join two of my friends in Rome and see how they celebrate the season. We're at 877-333-RICK. 
We're thinking about Christmas, and I'm joined by two friends and fellow tour guides from Rome. I've got Francesca Caruso on the line by telephone from Rome, and Susanna Perrucchini is right here in our Seattle area studios. Merry Christmas, Francesca and Susanna. Merry Christmas to you. How do you say Merry bon Christmas? Natale. Bon, bon Natale. Natale I should bon say. Natale. Bon Natale. <laughs> Let's talk about Christmas in Rome. What's unique about Christmas in Rome? Christmas in, in Rome is it's a very family thing. I mean, it's not so much about the decorations. It's not so much about the presents. It is being with your family. So I think that the thing that we invest in and most is uh, is food, for example, to prepare the perfect Christmas Eve meal and the meal on Christmas Day. So there is a saying in Italy that uh, goes, Natale con i tuoi. Pasqua con chi vuoi, which means Christmas with your own, with your own family, and Easter uh, with whom, whoever you wish. So absolutely you have to spend it with your family. So uh, something that we traditionally do at Christmas is we go on a walk and we go to the main churches to see the nativity scenes that they set up. Okay. And then maybe a quick stop at the Christmas fair in Piazza Navona and then a concert in the churches. Uh, within the past few years, I have to say, gospel, the American gospels, the Italian have discovered an absolute passion for and they're becoming more and more popular. So we have a lot of uh, of singers from the states who come and sing gospel. Wow, for American us gospel! Yes, oh, yes. The it's great. Adore it. Now it was fun to look at Susanna as you were saying that phrase. Say the phrase again, Susanna. Is Natale con i tuoi, Pasqua con chi vuoi? Now Francesca talked about the food is important. Susanna, tell me about your image of the classic Roman Christmas feast. When my mother moved from Padova to Rome, she started to cook differently. So in the northern part of Italy, we use more butter, rice, and of course in the south, tomato. It's a little bit more tasty. Uh, So she melted. (laughs) So far, we have what I call um, Veneto Lazio cuisine. In my house, uh, what my mother cooked wonderfully, and uh, it's very typical from Rome, artichokes. So Lazio meaning the state of Rome. Yeah, the region. The state of Lazio, and then Veneto would be Verona and Venice. Yes, exactly, and Padova. Now, Francesca, in Rome, of course, this eel is a big deal, right? What's with the eel on Christmas? Yeah, I still have a horrible memory of my childhood with my dad bringing the live eel home and the poor eel (laughs) moving around in the kitchen sink as he had to. So the eel is flailing around in the kitchen sink as as the relatives are coming over for Christmas. You've got a fresh one. Yes, yes, but that's a great advantage of having an American mother as I do, that she put an end to the eel (laughs) in the sink. An end to the eel, like killing it or ending the tradition and not having it anymore? Well, not having it anymore. Okay, so no more eels (laughs) in your family. Why do they have an eel traditionally for Christmas in Rome? Because it's fish. Yes, Christmas Eve is fish, and the Roman specialty on Christmas Eve is fried things. So it can be anything from pieces of vegetable to pieces of fish to pieces of fruit like apple dipped in a very, very light batter and fried. This is the absolutely Roman specialty. Huh. Now, you mentioned it's a multi-generational thing. It's a time for the family to be together and for the little children. We have uh, St. Nicholas coming and, and so on, and you've got something called La Bafana. Abbasana comes comes on the 6th of January, and if children have been bad, if they've misbehaved, she will bring them coal, which is normally made of sugar. Uh, And if they've been good, she will bring gifts to them. Oh, so Mm. kids get black sugar, like fake coal, but they can eat it like candy? Yes. Yes. Ah. Now, Labafana is like a witch on a broomstick, right? Yes. Yes. And you've got your Christmas season that really, for a tourist, if you like all the festivities for Christmas, all the markets and so on, they go until January 6th. Yes, exactly. And that's epiphany. Uh, January 6th is the last day of the Christmas that was when, I guess that's after 12 days of Christmas. That's when the Magi... Uh, yeah. When the three yeah. kings the finally three brought kings. the gifts. Exactly. Yeah. So that and marks the end we, of the Christmas That's season. when we put away our nativity scenes and we take the decorations off the tree. Because mm-hmm. I've been to Rome many times after Christmas, like for New Year's, and I've got all this Christmas fun on the streets, and it really is this La Bafana festivity. That yes, yes absolutely. And yeah. everybody's on the Piazza Navone and they have a Christmas market. Yeah, that is the place where you usually want to see the Bafana coming down. Usually they use this big... Ragdoll, mm-hmm. uh, like La Befana, coming down the roofs of Rome to the, the main square, which is uh, Piazza Navona. So Piazza Navona is the, the place where you want to be on the 6th, on the night before. And just yeah. like little kids in America get photographed with Santa Claus, I think little kids in uh, Rome get photographed with this La Befana. Yes, even yes, though Santa Claus is a Babbo Natale, it's something that ah, we know. <laughs> always there. And yes. in Rome, the presepi is a big deal. That, that's the local word for manger scenes? Uh, presepio, yes. Presepio. Yes. And you yes, find and churches work really hard to make beautiful pres- uh, manger scenes. They really 
really do. They really do. There's some beautiful ones. Even if I have to say, maybe, uh, I think, Susanna, you agree that the most beautiful presepi in Italy are the ones made in Naples. Exactly. But we have a, in the 1700s especially, and we have a fantastic one that's on display all year round in Rome by the Roman Forum, which is absolutely worth a visit. But, you know, even in homes, I mean, I remember when I was a child and we made uh, our nativity scene in our fireplace, and we used to actually move the little figurines, and we put the little figurine of baby Jesus in the crib exactly at midnight on Christmas yes. Eve. Oh, doesn't the tradition go back to St. Francis? St. Francis created yes. the uh, nativities to help uh, tell the story of the birth of Christ. So he was such a creative teacher, and he used that to help tell the Christmas story. Yeah, we and still do it. Too, no? Yeah, yeah. And today, when you go to Naples, you find entire streets dedicated yes. to selling little figurines for the Presepio. Months ahead of time. Though. And, of course, the grandest Presepio, the grandest manger scene, is a house the size of a regular house. Yes. And it's on the main square at St. Peter's in front of yes. the church. Yes. 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 With the big tree. Well, now, who brings this big tree? Every year it comes from a different area, and there's a very long waiting list for villages in the mountains and the Alps that want to send it. So Catholic villages all over Christendom are trying to send the Pope a tree for Christmas. All right. I've been talking with Francesca Caruso from Rome and Susanna Perrochini right here in our studio, and we're celebrating Christmas all over the world. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Buon Natale. Buon Natale. Buon Natale Natale tutti. Natale, Merry Christmas time in Rome In St. Peter's Square the bells ring from the dome Vino in the glasses, pasta on the platters People that you love, that's all that matters Now it's time to take the precious moment out to pray It's Christmas time. Jolly old England. Big city. London. What's it like? I'm with Tom Hooper and Gillian Chadwick, two blue badge guides from London. Tom and Gillian, thanks for joining us. How do you celebrate Christmas in London? What can what tips do you have for travelers that might be visiting London during Christmas? Definitely go and see all the lights. Uh, yeah. Harrods and Fortnum and Mesa and all the shops. And Hamley's the toy store. The, yeah. So Oxford Circus, that area. Yeah, and Regent Street. Yeah. Regent Street, Oxford Regent Street's Circus. the big thing for lights. Regent Street. And then the great stores. What stores are most famous for their window displays? Harrods, Fortnum and Mason. Selfridges. And Kids. Where's, what's the Kids Wonderland? Kids is Hamley's. Yeah. Yeah, Kids is Hamley's. And how about classical music and Christmas sort of culture? There'll be carol concerts all over the place. Oh, churches. yes, we have the, the Christmas tree yeah. in Trafalgar Square from Norway. Norway gives... What's the story Old, about that? Oslo gives. Uh, because the Norwegian royal family lived in exile in London during the Second World War. And so as a sign of their gratitude, they send us a giant mm. Christmas tree every year. Yeah. Every Christmas you get a tree from, from Norway. Yeah. From specifically Oslo. The people of Oslo. Yes. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. They have a sort of lighting thing like you do Christmas trees here. Mm. And then they have carols almost every single evening around the Christmas tree. And all the proceeds go to charities. Yes. On Trafalgar Square. Yes. Yeah. In front of the National Gallery. Right in front of the National Gallery with the view of Big Ben down in the distance. Glorious. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed it doesn't snow a lot in London, but there's always snow on Trafalgar Square. Of course. What do they do? They make some snow there for the party? (laughs) I saw the kids there on the snow. It was wonderful. It's it's targeted snow. We have this special weather which you can target. Right there, a little little (laughs) microclimate on Trafalgar Square. Shoot the clouds, Mac. And one thing... ice rinks as well. Ice Ice rinks, I was going to say, down at Somerset Somerset House. Somerset House, the Natural History Museum. Tower of London's got one now Mm -hmm. in the moat as well. They have one there. In the, moat. in the moat. Ice rink crazy. Yeah. Around the tower? Yeah, a bit of it. A bit yeah. of, wow. That would be really good to treat <laughs> around the Tower of London. So there's a lot of fun in yeah. London during Christmas and, time. And um, if another night, really good place for Christmas to go is Hampton Court Palace, which is about a 30 minutes train ride. And they have loads of Christmas events and mm. they have their own ice rink as well. And what are the traditional things to eat and drink at Christmas time for you? Oh, turkey. 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 And stuffing and bread yes. sauce, cranberry sauce, and this thing and called Christmas, Christmas pudding. pudding. <laughs> now, what is Christmas pudding? Which is this unbelievably rich fruit and suet mix, it should be, yes. which is boiled, really, isn't it? It's sort of, if you put it in a pan with boiling, in its own container, in boiling water, and slowly over 16 years now, about whatever time, it heats up. So it's been, it's been simmering for it's a long time. It's pretty heavy. Yes. It's yeah. very heavy. Is a figgy pudding, is that something at yeah. Christmas? Nearly the same. The same Nearly the same. Yeah. Yeah. And mince pies, but they're illegal, aren't they? 
Yes. Why are they illegal? Thanks to Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell banned them in the 17th century. Well, he banned Christmas. Yeah. Oliver Cromwell, what an evil man. <laughs> You're free to celebrate Christmas now. Yes. yes we can, yes. yes. All right. Hey, we got uh, Marsha on the line in Mill Creek in Washington. Hi, Marsha. Hi. Thanks for your call. I got a question. I do. We are going to be in London for a week, the end of May, and in reading your London guidebook, discovered that Monday is a bank holiday. And so we want to know what kind of things would be available to do, what's going to be closed um, if we can't figure out how to take the Eurostar to Paris for the day. Everything is open except for the banks. That's why it's called a bank holiday. There there may be some um, pubs and restaurants in the financial area which won't be open, Mm. but in the main area, everything will be running as usual. All the museums, all the shops. So for a tourist, you're saying the bank holiday is no big concern? No. 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 Uh, except for Christmas Day. Christmas Day, or the yeah, day after? Or it's, no, that's Boxer. That's Boxing, Boxing Day. Boxing day. Yeah. Yeah. The only other thing for visitors is they're going to have to f- discover that there are lots of Brits around because they've got the day off as well, so they go to museums. Well, if they have the day off and something's closed. Yeah. I mean, it's not just banks that are closed. Then are schools out? Or schools out. Yes. Yeah. Or can you yeah. go to the, is the dentist working and the doctor? Probably not. Probably not. No. So for the British working person... It's a day off. Okay, mm-hmm. so you're saying from a traveler's point of view, the museums and the sites are, are fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hotels yeah. and restaurants, yeah. obviously. Yeah. All the public transits go yeah. up. Yeah. You're just yeah. going to have more Englishmen on vacation. Yeah. And usually there'll be special events as well put on. Mm-hmm. Overall, it's probably not a negative to be there. Oh, no, 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 no. There it, you go, Marcia. And it's Perfect. Good, good Thank to, you. Good to be mixing with the Brits. Uh, it is good to be mixing with the Brits. Yep, we're All right. forward to it. Speaking of Brits, you guys are really into tradition. Whenever I'm in London, there's a pageantry, there's, there's a parade going on, and you're also, like, you celebrate eccentricity. Yes. What do you mean? <laughs> I love English eccentricity. Now, is there some kind of connection with this, or what's the, this passion for that? Well, I always find that the strangest thing to celebrate is Guy Fawkes Day, that we're celebrating a Catholic uh, execution. But we're burning a, a Catholic, basically. Because he, well, tried to but he tried blow to blow up the blow houses up the, of Parliament. Well, yeah. yeah. So it's a this, sort of a celebrating, you caught a terrorist, basically. Yes. Well, yes. Yeah, but this but is it's a, just a big excuse for a party then, huh? Basically, yeah. Ex- except that there is this bonfire with it. You burn this thing called a guy on top, and it used to be Guy Fawkes. Mm. Okay. And, in, and now, of course, people realize, well, you burn anybody you like, really. So they've had figures of Tony Blair up oh, there. Oh, so the burning yes. effigy, anybody? Yes, and yes. now this is just the, the, the rabble goes wild and yeah. we have a big party. Well, is it's that a just certain... a big party and you, you know, burn Tony Blair or <clears throat> other, other world leaders, possibly. Other world leaders that you um, might have a problem with? Okay. And um, there's one town, which is near where Gillian yeah. lives, where I don't know where they still, but I think they, they, still, do, burn they, burn the, they the still, still burn the Pope. Yeah. Wow. Is this the same day every year? Yeah. Same day. It's Guy Fawkes Day. 5th, yeah, of, 5th of, November. of November. So bring your matches on the 5th of November. <laughs> well... Um, no. (laughs) Okay, good. For the record, no. (laughs) Well, Merry Christmas to you in London. Thanks. Thank you. This weekend, Scandinavians are getting into the holiday spirit by celebrating the Feast of Santa Lucia. That's when young maidens process with candelabras in their hair. And next week on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear how Christmas is celebrated in Paris, Edinburgh, Spain, Sicily, Australia, and the Netherlands. Chuck's on the line from Spring Hill, Florida. Hi, Chuck. Uh, Chris Scott. Chris, Chris Scott, what a wonderful greeting. Sounds like you've been in Switzerland or Germany recently. Oh, the Deutschland is very beautiful there, especially in Christmas time. Oh, yes, indeed. And this brings me a story about Nuremberg. Tell me. That's the most well, famous place for Christmas market, isn't it? Oh, I think you've been there. Uh, the, the Chris Kindle Mart, correct? My feeling is if you're going to do one Christmas market, go to Nuremberg. Yes, I, I agree with you completely. What a beautiful, large, the sounds, the taste, the smells. It's just beautiful. Tell me about your experience there. Uh, one day in the morning, uh, I woke up early to watch... Uh, the people set up for the Chris Kindle Mart. They start bringing in the cookies and the, the glue vine, the sausages, and they start uh, frying the onions and the smells. It just cannot be duplicated on TV. You need to go there and smell them all. Yes. But I was walking around early in the morning, and I turned the corner, and here's a, a van with a lady starting to stumble out of the van with a, with a tray of a Liebkuchen uh, gingerbread cookies. And I catch the tray. I didn't catch the girl or the woman. <laughs> I catch the tray. I bet she's glad you caught the gingerbread cookies. That's great. <laughs> she she laughed and said something in her in her German, and uh, and my little German is so bad. But 
we saved the cookies, basically, and we had a good laugh. And uh, she gave me one of the cookies. Well, that would be the least she could do if you saved her whole tray of cookies. Well, that's true, too. Man, and oh, man. The, the people around were laughing at her and saying things in German to her. And I guess, I guess the gist of it, I was, is that she's always like that. You know, so, uh, established and big time as the Christmas market is in Nuremberg, you feel that community, don't you, while you're there? Yes, you do. It seems like some of the little booths that they have there are the same booths, the same people, year after year, family, traditional booths. And they have a high standard of quality. I mean, there can be nothing mass-produced. There can be nothing imported from Asia or anything like that. It's good, local. I mean, they're knickknacks for Christmas ornaments and so on, but it's all quality, uh, locally made stuff. And you've got those wonderful Nuremberg sausages. Yes, you do, the, the, little, the little sausages. The little, like the size of your little finger. They come three laying there side by side on, a, on like a hamburger bun, and boy, what a wonderful treat that is. Yes, have you been to Regensburg? I've been to Regensburg, yeah. Where the, the oldest sausage stand in Germany, supposedly. Oh, is that right? There. I, I, don't know, I don't know about that, but anytime I see the word Nuremberger sausages, I'm there. <laughs> That's great. And the other story I have in, in Nuremberg is that my wife and I were walking around like you do in the city during the Christmas time, and I always keep my glass with me to get a, a refill called Nachshake and Glühwein. And I just happened to see another little, just a little booth, and, and there's some paintings on the wall that I really didn't recognize. And I walked up to ask for my refill, and the fella said something in German about dolphins and, a, and an extra... Uh, euro for the dolphins. And I'm thinking, we're in the middle of Germany. I was thinking Miami Dolphins. I was thinking <laughs> football or something, because being an American. And, and he laughed. And he says, no, no, not Miami. We're trying to build a, uh aquarium. Right. And they're trying to get dolphins to come to the aquarium. And this booth was, was taking all the profits, and it's going to the aquarium. Wow. So after we both had red faces and his little American and my little German, I finally understood why he wanted an extra euro. So did you chip in a euro for the dolphins? Oh, yes, I did. Good for you. I sure did. And you know, maybe even without knowing it, but you were playing right by the rules there. You kept your cup because I noticed at the Nuremberg Christmas Market a vast festival, thousands of people, but there are, by law, no disposables. They're all ceramic cups, and uh, when you get that glühwein, you pay a deposit, and you have to bring back that cup, or I suppose you can bring your own, but there's no disposable cups. That's absolutely true. In fact, if you didn't have enough of the deposit, sometimes the people would let you just drink and trust you but if you walked out of their sight, boy, they would be <laughs> hollering at you. I bet. Well, they're, they're experts at that. Hey, Chuck, thanks so much for sharing a little bit of uh, Nuremberg Christmas with us. Well, thank you for having me. Happy travels. Thank you. Mein Schiff is wartet hier. Komm, steig rein zu mir. Santa Lucia. Santa Lucia. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback and archived audio on demand. It's in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.